Good afternoon, everybody. Today is Friday, March 15th, 2019. I am your host, Chris Dorso, and this is Higher Ed Live Special Edition. So once again, higher education is in the national spotlight. We had uh, dozens of people. We had uh, parents and coaches and consultants and, yes, celebrities uh, indicted earlier this week in a massive college admission scandal that begs questions about whether or not the entire system is rigged to favor the wealthy. And in this special edition broadcast, excuse me, we will discuss the scandal with a esteemed panel of higher education experts diving into the many issues that this scandal raises. And we've got a million things that we can talk about. I feel like the story changes every half an hour, but we will explore the institution-wide short and long-term repercussions. We'll try to determine what the best next steps are for all of us in enrollment management. And we will uh, answer any questions that you have along the way. Higher Ed Live Special Edition is part of the Higher Ed Live Network. Our office, our episodes offer you direct access to the best and the brightest minds in education. Be part of the live broadcast by sharing your knowledge, and you can participate by tweeting us. Let me reset my tweet deck there at hashtag Higher Ed Live, and we will take whatever questions we can. All of our episodes are free and easy to access in the video archives at higheredlive.com, or you can subscribe to the podcast, higheredlive.com slash podcasts. Higher Ed Live is produced by M. Stoner, a digital-first agency that is committed to tailored solutions that drive real results. And today's episode is also sponsored by our friends at Mongoose. Mongoose is the creator of the wildly popular texting platform, Cadence. We here at the College of Brockport uh, are big fans of the Cadence platform. Uh, it has helped over 400 institutions facilitate engagement via text messaging at critical friction points throughout the student life cycle. For case studies, best practices about how texting can help your institution, please visit mongoosecadence.com. All right, and with that, we are going to bring in our esteemed panel of guests. Uh, we have uh, some fantastic folks uh, with us today. We have Eric Hoover, who is a senior writer from the Chronicle of Higher Education. We have Stephanie Niles, who is the president of the National Association for College Admissions Counseling, NACAC. She is also vice president for enrollment communications at Ohio Wesleyan. And Julie Lifecott Hames, the former Dean of Freshmen at Stanford University and the author of How to Raise an Adult and Real American. And I apologize to her because both of my copies of her books are out uh, with friends right now. So I had to stop at the library and pick up copies of the books to show you all. Uh, both fantastic books, How to Raise an Adult as both a higher education professional and as a parent uh, is life changing. So there you go. So again, don't hesitate to ask questions along the way, uh, and I'll do my best to ask those as they come in. But let's get started. Uh, so this story has so very many tentacles that stretch all over the place. We're going to start with the basics. Um, Eric, as our uh, on-staff journalist today, uh, you want to do a, just a quick recap of what we know at this point Friday afternoon. Yes. So I'm trying to remember back to Tuesday morning at about 10.30 when uh, I, I thought I knew what I was going to do this week. <laughs> um, it was going to be a rather leisurely week, uh, relatively speaking, as I planned a, uh, a trip uh, uh, that had nothing to do with this. Uh, but then we learned um, late morning um, that uh, these uh, just kind of sweeping indictments were uh, thrown down by federal authorities. Uh, this was the culmination of Operation Varsity Blues, and you have to love that title, uh, an FBI investigation uh, leading to uh, federal indictments implicating 50 people in a rather elaborate, far-reaching uh, fraud uh, scheme um, and a bribery scheme. And at its center is an independent educational consultant, private college consultant named Rick Singer, based in California. And he was the mastermind, it seems, of this uh, plot to uh, find... As, uh, as we now are familiar with this term, side doors into uh, uh, selective, super selective, hyper selective colleges. Um, and uh, he used uh, deceit to, um, to make this happen. And he had two primary strategies, um, exploring kind of taking advantage of weaknesses, if you will, within the admissions process. And one thing he did was to funnel uh, thousands and in some cases millions of dollars from his clients, mothers and fathers who, as he is alleged to have said, wanted a guarantee um, that 
their child would get into the college of their uh, choice. Um, and so one thing he did was to funnel those thousands or in some cases millions of dollars to uh, coaches on athletics teams at uh, these institutions. There are at least eight, I believe. Um, and these coaches in turn would provide this uh, service. Uh, and that was to say that little Jimmy or little Susie was in fact uh, an athlete that they were recruiting, in some cases uh, that they wanted to designate as a walk-on for their team, be it tennis or rowing uh, and some other sports. Um, and so uh, he was successful um, with this scheme and getting some students of his clients in for a lot of money. Uh, colleges that they almost certainly in most cases wouldn't have been able to uh, gain access to otherwise. And the other uh, prong here in this uh, in this scheme uh, involved uh, uh, arranging for uh, various kinds of cheating on standardized tests um, that would give these students also a, an unfair kind of advantage and means of uh, upping their score, even though they really hadn't um, been the ones who have uh, taken the test. So, yes, Felicity Huffman. Uh, Lori Lachlan uh, are the big names here, but leaving that celebrity angle aside, I mean, this is something that involves 50 people, many of them mothers and fathers, um, and the rest of them uh, test proctors, um, and then people who work at colleges and universities. And in all cases, those uh, so far we know are coaches or in one instance, uh, an administrator in an athletics department. And again, worth noting, worth reminding people, uh, the fact that, at least as of today, none of those 50 people work in a college admissions or enrollment uh, office. And so um, last, last thing, uh, if you didn't see the news yesterday, there is a class action lawsuit um, uh, already been thrown down um, by some students uh, at Stanford, I should say a lawsuit seeking class action uh, status. And so um, surely not the last uh, shoe to drop there on that legal front that we'll see. Um, so I'll stop there. Uh, but those are the, the basics uh, just three days later. Yeah, it's just, just, just a little story, just, just a tiny yeah. little story. So let's, um, since you mentioned the, uh, you know, sort of the admissions piece of this, uh, ooh, um, <laughs> let's, uh, let's bring in uh, Stephanie Niles, who is the president of uh, NACAC right now. So Stephanie, let's talk about this from the admissions perspective. Uh, NACAC did release a statement uh, from um, uh, the CEO, Joyce Smith, who is fantastic, uh, talking about uh, basically addressing what uh, Eric just noted, that it, NACAC members are not uh, included in this investigation. They're not, uh, you know, we're, I don't want to say we're the victims in this, but, you know, we're, we're not the perpetrators, we'll put it that way. Um, Talk about this from the university side and, you know, what we see as an organization from an admissions perspective. Sure, sure. Sorry. So that was my barking dog in the background. I apologize. I was uh, not with the options I normally have in terms of the space I could use today. So uh, my apologies if they start no again. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that that I appreciate that Eric led with that point, or at least concluded with that point around admission offices. Um, that's certainly been a question that I've seen amongst some of our members, whether or not there are admission officers or admission offices in general that are involved in this. Um, certainly, though, it's important from an ACAC perspective and from a professional perspective that we do take a very close look at the vulnerabilities that were exposed in this case in relation to the admission process. What do we need to do differently? How do we need to examine indeed how this occurred, how this was able to make its way through the admission process? Were there things that one could have seen, known, ascertained from the information that um, was received? You know, when I think about it from a professional perspective, having read thousands upon thousands of applications over the years, um, you know, I can certainly see how this would make its way through an admission office without raising any red flags, um, whether it be simply the volume of information that is received or the the method or the levels that it seems were um, implied here that allowed this to occur in a really elaborate scheme um, that really kind of pulled the wool over over everyone's eyes here. So I think, and I, I could not possibly agree with you more. Uh, and I think one of the, and I'm, so I have two questions and I'm not quite sure what direction I wanna go here, but my, my first piece is the schools that are obviously caught up in this are obviously big names, they're big name athletics and all this kind of stuff. 
there is a, uh, a piece in 538 uh, that I'm actually going to send out a tweet right now about. Um, the, the, art of the title of the article uh, is Americans Want Grades to Decide College Admissions. And it's a, um, a survey from Pew uh, saying, how, asking how much of a factor various pieces should uh, play into college admissions. And people think high school grades, standardized test scores, community service, being the first person in family to go to college are the four most important facets of whether a student should be admitted. And I am here to tell the audience of 538 uh, and the higher ed live audience that in 99% of the admissions cases, that is what determines whether students get into college. I mean, yes, this is obviously uh, a, a juicy story, but the reality of college admissions is so much bigger than the way it's typically portrayed in the media. Right, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, you're right. I mean, we do look first and foremost at grades, how a student's performed over this four-year time period, the ways in which they have prepared themselves for the rigor of a college-level curriculum, what's available to them in their high school setting, and how have they how have they achieved in that setting? What do their recommendations tell us from their teachers, from the counselors, the people who know them best from an academic perspective? What have they achieved that would allow them to be successful? It does the student no good and does the institution no good if we enroll a student who is unable to succeed in that academic environment? So first and foremost, absolutely. It certainly is the case that admission offices, institutions are looking for well-rounded classes. You know, they're looking for individuals who are going to fill a lot of roles on campus. So, you know, next to that academic success, they are going to look at the variety of ways in which a student brings their talents and abilities to the campus and where they can grow in those talents and abilities, whether it be the first chair violinist, the captain of the football team, the eventual student body president, students who are going to take part in an array of activities on the campus that's going to be very much a part of their experience. And we then are looking for the ways in which students have broadened their own horizons as young people and the ways that they're sort of intellectually and personally continuing to challenge themselves at college. So you're starting to get to some of those other facets, for example, when you speak about community service. And then I know that article talked about other contributions that a student might make. But again, those are in, I think, as you said, 99% of the time secondary to that um, academic component of their application. Yeah, uh, Stephanie, Chris, if I could just uh, chime in here. I mean, I, I, um, I do wonder if this is an opportunity. It might sound like a, a, a horrible cliche that this is, this is a moment of opportunity um, for um, admissions leaders, for admissions officers to um, have that conversation framed around some of what you just said. I mean, I think the, the public is incredibly skeptical of admissions offices, to say the least, even before. Um, what everyone learned this Tuesday morning, I think there's a real sense that um, SAT scores, no matter what all of you say, um, the ACT scores and SAT scores really do matter, really do matter a lot, perhaps matter too much. Um, so I, you know, I'd be, I'd be, uh, I'll be eager to see what, if anything, um, of an opening there might be for folks like you and your counterparts uh, to to reiterate what it is you're looking for and what kind of the balance of things is um, when you're looking at an applicant. And I mean, one more thought, I, I did of course note that none of the 50 people involved and implicated in this uh, scandal, at least so far, are um, admissions officers. And I think that's an important point because as, as many uh, folks in your field have said to me, uh, we were due too. hey, we're victims here too. And I think that's a fair point. Next sentence. As far as most of the public is concerned, I'm just guessing. I don't know that that really matters because they're looking at this um, as people getting in or not getting into college um, for reasons that often seem screwy to them or unfair. And then something like this comes along. So I'm just wondering how much that fact, though it does matter, um, really, you know, will make a difference to the public's perception of what's going on here. So that's kind of what I meant when I wrote my article yesterday that admissions officers are, I think, kind of in a bind. Um, no one wants to be seen washing their hands of this. Um, how do you make the point that admissions officers weren't um, directly involved while still acknowledging that as far as I think most people in the public are concerned, hey, this is a college admissions scandal, I mean, as you, as you, uh, as you acknowledge. 
Right, right. And I, I think you're right. I think that it will open up the doors for a conversation. I think that it is critical that we do take what perhaps we see as an opportunity in, uh, in this scandal to have that conversation, to further examine the process. I think that conversation has been underway for some time, but I think this is yet another opportunity to continue to examine um, how do we alleviate some of the pressures on students through this process? How do we ensure that the focus is on academic ability, students' uh, contributions, their character? You know, how can we really assess the full individual and their fit for the institution um, where they're going to best thrive? Yeah, we got, uh, you know, we're a, a medium-sized Division three school here in Western New York, and our local media called us the other day, and they said, hey, uh, do you want to get on camera and talk about you know, what safeguards are in place at Brockport. And the gut reaction here is, well, nobody's paying half a million dollars to get into Brockport. <laughs> we, uh, as, as much as that, uh, you know, is a thing nationwide, the, the reality of, of where we are, are here is not the case. But at the same time, I think being able to, uh, to, to drive that narrative a little bit and talk about how we review applications and what goes into how we review applications, I think is, is an opportunity or anytime we're getting exposure we can you know make it make make the best of what can be you know it really is sort of a crazy situation and really make sure that the the important stuff comes out mm -hmm. um so i want to uh, bring in julie um about the sort of the parent side of this uh, as well uh so so much of the craziness uh, in college admissions these days uh, does come out of parents. And ultimately, as much as this is an admission scandal, it's sort of a parenting scandal, too, of sorts. Um, and so, uh, you know, what what can we in, in higher ed do to to help parents to to sort of make I don't want to say make this better, but to 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 really um, uh, how do I phrase it? You know, to 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 bring the reality of, of what college admissions is to parents in a way that that is helpful. Yeah, it's a parenting scandal, all right. Um, it's an ethics scandal. I mean, it points to the cold, sobering fact that we have a huge problem around ethics in this country, and in in every capacity. This is this is one example. Um, Parents, you know, I'm calling this now drone parenting. We've, you know, that it's not a new term, but I want to clarify for this purpose. It's like the parent is the drone lifting the package, which is the child lifting them up, carrying them to the desired future, which is the right college. The child is literally the inanimate object being handled and deposited. And um, it's sort of the, you know, the absurd latest um, aspect of, of helicopter parenting. I frankly don't think parents are gonna change anytime soon. Parents who feel they must deliver their child to the right future are gonna continue to seek ways to do that. Um, if you were to take away, um, if it was all to be focusing on, if, if admissions only focused on grades, parents would do more homework than they're already doing. Parents are already doing their kids' homework to perfect grades, and we would just amp that up if it seemed like grades was the, you know, was 90% of, of the uh, criteria used in admission. You know, if it was all about letters of recommendation, then parents would be bribing teachers to write better letters of recommendation. So, I, you know, parents who are off the rails are off the rails. Um, and I think what we have to get at then is, you know, why, why are they so off the rail? Why are they so obsessed with these schools? You know, these elite, these highly selective schools are tantalizing to people because we've made them so. Um, it is not true that the U.S. News top 20 are the top 20 schools in America. You know, they just happen to be tops according to some rubric U.S. News came up with. There are plenty of amazing schools. We have to be much more nimble at narrating to that fact so that parents aren't so obsessed with getting their kids to those big brand name places. Um, you know, so telling the truth about, you know, look, look at these other amazing schools, look at this honors college at this public school you don't think you've ever heard of. Look at these amazing scholarly arts colleges. Look at how this amazingly successful person started in community college and then went to their state school. Like telling the truth of the fact that there are myriad paths to success, the more we can create videos and movies and stories and podcasts that illustrate the truth of that, I think the more we can kind of 
get parents back on the rails, so to speak. I just want to jump in. I think that's a great point that Julie makes and so important work that we need to continue doing and a message that we really need to share. I've worked at institutions from quite selective to not particularly selective and, and in between. And I've seen fantastic individuals who have graduated, who've been very successful personally and professionally. Everyone who can tell a story of wonderful successful individuals who graduated from a wide, wide range of institutions. There's absolutely not one pathway to success in this country through the educational institutions that, that we offer. Yeah. Could I say, I do think the SAT, I mean, what, what this has exposed is that this system is so gameable, you know, back doors, side doors, you know, um, my perspective is that U.S. News is a real culprit here. And if more schools took the brave route that Reed College has taken, for example, and said, we refuse to send in our numbers. If the big boys in college admission, the most highly selective, refuse to send their data in, the US news structure would top, the college ranking structure would topple. And if schools then were let off the hook, not needing to worry about proving how selective they are and showing how high their median SATs are, which are both factors in the US news ranking, if that ranking went off the table, couldn't schools settle down a bit and actually focus on uh, admitting kids based on a truly holistic review? Or am uh, I wrong to think that that would change things? I think, I think it's a great question, Julie. Um, and I feel like there's, there's fascinating answers we could possibly come up with. But um, I also would add uh, to your thought that I, I do think, and I'm not here to defend US news, um, but I do think U.S. news is often a convenient kind of foil for all kinds of behaviors that are institutionalized uh, among at least a set of colleges and universities uh, that are competing with each other, even though it seems like, well, what are they competing for? They, they, have, they seemingly have everything, okay? So like selectivity, acceptance rates, this is something that derives uh, parents' behavior and it shapes their thinking about what a worthwhile college is or what an essential college is. I mean. Okay, U.S. News has taken uh, that controversial uh, metric, right? Acceptance rate as gauge of quality. The lower, the better. Um, they've taken that out of the rankings. Um, it still matters to people, um, uh, if not in admissions offices at so many colleges, and at least people who are in charge of the campus itself. So I do wonder, like, even if U.S. News just crumbled into, into dirt, um, so, um, so many of these uh, behaviors and impulses that people often say are driven by U.S. News, I, I do think that appetite would still be there um, on the campus level for some, not all, but for some colleges just wanting to compete with their peers. I mean, it's fascinating to me, Google Stanford, Google any big name school or pretty much any college, and probably what's going to come up is the name of the school, where it's located, and its acceptance rate. I mean, this is just something that people are constantly Googling up, and it matters to them, even though that particular metric no longer you know, as part of U.S. news formula. So I just wonder how much of this is just would just continue inevitably not to be totally depressing here. But right. <laughs> well, I think that's that's valid. And I think that's, you know, and but to Julie's point, it's 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 a tough system to break because it's the the whole competitiveness of the higher education system uh, is so ingrained in who we are. Um, I just tweeted a a little piece from uh, Kevin McMullen from CollegeWise, who talked about name branditis and has name branditis gone too far. And if you took the names off of the, the US News top 20, you know, take Harvard, air quotes, out of the equation, take Stanford, uh, take uh, whatever, out of the equation and just rebrand them as a different name, and you couldn't refer to it as for the school formerly known as Harvard, would you still, you know, what are you going to get out of that experience? And are you? Is it still as appealing to you, to, to apply there, to pay a consultant millions of dollars to get you there? Uh, and admittedly, I think part of the answer to that question might still be yes, because the system is what the system is, and there's still that connection that you're making at those elite schools. Until we can spread it out across everybody else, those connections are still going to be there, and so it's going to be a self-propagating sort of thing. So. Uh, it's, it's, I agree, it's, it's harder to break than I think we would like it to be. That's not so we can't push in that direction. And that's in, incumbent on the rest of us 
to make sure we help push in that direction. Well, it's an interesting question too, Chris. I mean, then we would be doing a test essentially to see is it the name brand or is it US News, right? Is it the tool right. or is it the brand, it's the name itself, which is driving the, the, the furor in this process? Um, so let's talk a little bit about uh, one of the things that uh, really, that came out of this that as sort of a secondary piece that um, I didn't even think about when it the story first hit uh, you know, is the the racial um, overtones to this. Um, a good friend of mine from high school, uh, one of my closest friends, went to Cornell, uh, is uh, got her law degree, uh, is Latina, and she talked about how she felt like she had to constantly justify her existence at the school she was at. And not for nothing, the white kids don't necessarily have to justify that same existence. And that's something I think that that is a piece of this light that has, as far as I can tell, never really come up. You know, I think we know, especially those of us in the field, you know, we get it, but it's certainly never been vocalized the way I've seen it through tweets and through posts and all of that over the last couple of days. You're saying never been vocalized, but for those of us who are of color, this is always vocalized. Absolutely. This has never been vocalized, maybe around white people. Yeah. But this is um, an extraordinary truth that those of us, and I'm one of them, who um, attended an elite school as a person of color, uh, we are constantly subjected to that inference. Uh, sometimes it's just outright um, explicitly stated or lobbed at us. And what you just said was white folks, you know, have never had to contend with that assertion. And I smiled and thought they do now. You bet. Absolutely. You know, I have, you know, of course, I've, I've had a career in higher ed. And when I see online prior to the scandal, the, you know, the nasty language about black and brown kids stealing spots from more deserving white kids, my response has always been, the largest set asides in this country or the greatest amount of affirmative action goes to children of donors, children of legacies, and children who are athletes. And the NCAA athletic population is primarily white, contrary to the optics, which has you think football players and basketball players are the only NCAA athletes. The majority of NCAA athletes are white. And so there are far more slots, set aside, thumbs on scale, whatever given to white kids. And I love the fact that this scandal is uh, revealing that truth. And I hope it makes folks a little bit more humble about um, their feeling the need to accuse uh, a set of marginalized folks, black and brown people in this country, poor people, first gen kids, you know, accuse them of stealing their spots. It's really white wealth and white privilege that's stealing. If any spots are being stolen, those are the folks doing the stealing. Julie, I think that's uh, that's such a crucial point, and and I, I feel like that's that's a major reason why this moment I, I think feels so important and urgent when we come to a discussion about what's fair in admissions and questions of who deserves to be here and how do people feel. Um, not very long ago, in October, I sat in a court federal courthouse in Boston. Uh, covering uh, the the final stretch of the uh, Harvard uh, trial um, in the uh, race conscious admissions uh, case, and uh, you know there was a day of testimony from students at Harvard, current and former African American students and Hispanic students and Asian American students, and they were talking about what it feels like to be on uh, an elite campus like that, mostly white, mostly privileged, and the the word that I kept thinking about was just fragile. Um, they felt fragile. These were smart, confident, high achieving young men and women with, with big dreams and, uh, and, and all kinds of uh, smarts going for them. Um, and yet they talked about so vividly often feeling fragile, even though they had won, right? They had won. They had gotten the golden ticket. They had got to go to Harvard University, arguably the most famous university in the world. And even so, their experience there, even after years, was still often one of not always feeling welcome or like that they fit there or that, you know, they're, they're doing something, raising their hand in class, working a campus job, walking across the quad and feeling like someone was looking at them, like, yeah. you don't deserve to be here. I wish, 
anyone who recruits students, counsels students, advises students, looks at applicants' applications could have been in that courthouse to hear that. So I, I'm reminded of that now as we're talking about um, the issues you raised that are, that are so relevant to this uh, scandal. Yeah, the, um, another headline that I really liked uh, in the Washington Post, uh, now that we see what stealing a college slot really looks like, can we stop making students of color feel like frauds? Nice. So I think that's, that's so very much the reality for so many students. Um, so, you know, it, it, how much does, you know, Fisher versus Texas, how much does, you know, affirmative action play into, you know, what, what, what comes out of this? You know, uh, they, that case was emblematic of, of the way a lot of privileged white folks feel. It was, oh, they're giving this spot, uh, you know, the, the spots to, to people who don't deserve it as much as I do just because of, of their color. And uh, I guess, you know, the, it does that, how do we rekindle that um, across the spectrum of, of admissions? Sort of a I don't know, I'm totally phrasing that wrong. I don't want to phrase that. I'm gonna I, come I think it's, a, it's a tough question, Chris. I mean, and I think that there's, I think it's a, an important question. I think it's one that we are going to continue to ask ourselves. I think, you know, what Julie and, and Eric were just talking about in, in their exchange, you know, is, is reflective of the fact that this is, you know, not about sort of affirmative action as it's been known, but we're, you know, expanding and thinking uh, differently about access to college and, you know, who's being denied and how are they being denied. And, it, you know, it's going to continue to play out as as these two situations, you know, sort of are, are running at this point in time parallel to each other. All right. Um, let's see. What else is on my, I have so many questions here. I have list pages upon pages of, of questions that I want to ask. Um, and I'm trying to keep this as, as sort of directed as we can. Um, so let's talk about, um, oh, actually, no, yeah, one of the questions that did come up that I want to ask, maybe some of you have seen, uh, we got a question from, uh, on Twitter from Lisa Lockman. Lisa, thanks for, uh, from Lexington, Kentucky. Um, ask about the documentary, Unlikely, and I did some Googling, uh, and uh, it looks like it's a documentary that uh, investigates the college dropout crisis and the systemic barriers that students face. Are any of you familiar with Unlikely, the documentary? No. I'm it. not. Yeah. All right. Well, I can't address it then, unfortunately, Lisa, but it is now on my list of things. So I'm going to uh, to look into it and check it out. So thank you for the uh, the tip on that. Um, so the, uh, the let's talk a little bit about the systems that are in place um, as we sit right now. So um, and this comes from um, Alexis Ned, who's a Mashable writer. Uh, and Alexis says the elite college admission system is predicated on the completely legal ways Rich people advantage their children via tutors, test prep activities, sports legacy, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, so it's extra funny to me when they fumble all that and say, screw it, let's do crime. So the the systems that we have in place right now, you know, as you've mentioned, it's, you know, it's test prep and it's, um, uh, you know, uh, great inflation. I mean, there's a million uh, tentacles to it uh, really fly in the face of who we profess to be as higher ed, as, as higher education institutions. We talk about equity, we talk about diversity, we talk about inclusion, but the systems that we have in place don't necessarily reflect that. Uh, how do we tweak that? How do we make those systems? How do we get to that equity, diversity, and inclusion piece? How do we get pointed in that direction in a really realistic way? On today's episode of Stump the Panel, <laughs> we're half an hour in. We're getting well, deep. We're getting our, deep. Our, um, I mean, um, you know, in the last several years, there have been various conversations. Um, one led by uh, a new coalition of uh, colleges that have agreed to use a common application. I'm sorry, a shared application platform, um, and to um, uh, you know, with the stated goal of increasing uh, access of underrepresented uh, minority students and first-generation students. And, um, okay, many people think that's a noble goal, but, um, you know, the smartest uh, person I know who's reflected on that um, development, um, I'm talking about the Coalition for College application, um, uh, said, okay, you want to um, enroll more 
low-income first-generation students, um, admit more of them. And they would add, fund them. Um, I mean, I don't know how much of this is rocket science, so much as institutional colleges want to uh, give up, uh, either in terms of metrics or in terms of particular subgroups of students, be they legacies, um, or students who fit other descriptions who have a lot going for them, to be imaginative in admissions, to not be so tethered to test scores. Um, these are some ways that I think colleges are trying to make progress, the ones who are actually doing it and not just talking about it or not just bringing in you know, a handful more of, you name the subgroup of kid um, on, the, on the margins. But um, you know, I, I, I really think it comes down to an institutional will involving actual humans sitting around a table and like any smart group of people uh, talking about anything in enrollment, um, to get more of something, perhaps sometimes that means giving other things up yeah. uh, because you all have to balance so many competing goals and, prior and, and prioritize them. So, okay, colleges that are serious about um, expanding diversity, broadly defined, um, are having sometimes to make trade-offs and choices. Uh, we can't have more of everything. I think that's, a, that's just something that, in my view, many admissions leaders and institutional leaders, you know, above them um, are, are just unable to accept. Yeah, I think that's the, the daily. Oh, go ahead, Julie. No, you go, you go. I was just going to say briefly, I think that's the daily conundrum that I deal with is, as Eric said, those competing priorities around the need to generate revenue, the need to bring in a high profile academic profile class, the need to enhance diversity of our student population. Um, the need to simply bring in the size class that we are looking for as an institution. Um, and you're right, there are trade-offs. And if you make progress towards one goal, typically you are losing ground in another area. And so I, I agree that it's a lot about individual institutions really taking a hard look at their own priorities, that they're um, their own processes. And, you know, if I, if I had the answer, I think I was stumped initially, I had the answer to this question, I'd be in a different position in terms of the success of, of my institution and being able to, you know, really advise broadly on how can we create what is a, a more ideal scenario for this wider range of students. You know, I didn't jump in right away because I'm not an admissions person, so I don't even have any of the answers. Um, I do want to note that in this conversation, we've used the word tweak, tweak the system about five times. And I think we're getting the clear message that something a lot bigger than a tweak is needed. We need to dismantle and rebuild the system. It is broken. It is gameable. It is scammable. It is in ways unethical. It's not, you know, it, I, I trust that the smart people who run these institutions of higher education and their admissions and enrollment offices can put their heads together and reclaim their profession, you know, from the claws of all of this scandal. I mean, I, I think if I was in admissions, I would, as I'm sure everybody is, I would just be so frustrated, angry, saddened, and mortified that some crooks have run away with my profession. And I would hope it's really prompting some like stop the presses as soon as we get our admissions letters out next week, you know, we're all gonna go into a cave somewhere and like figure this out. I'm on the board of a nonprofit here in East Palo Alto whose mission for 24 years has been get first generation kids of color to and through college. And um, we've had kids with 4.3 GPAs from local high schools get denied by the University of California uh, schools. Why? Because they're now taking so many kids from outside California, so many other countries to pay for the damn education. You know, it, California is turning its back on its own kids, which is just such a travesty. Um, I believe that the standardized test thing has to go. The SAT is a function of wealth, period, end of sentence. Let's not pretend it's anything otherwise. Stop asking for it. Stop looking at it. Have the guts to evaluate kids on metrics that are more clearly the work of the actual kid and their intellect and their capability instead of the dollars in their parents' pocketbook. And finally, I'm going to say there's a guy named Bob Sternberg who used to be a professor at Tufts, used to be a professor at somewhere else I can't remember off the top of my head, but he's now at Cornell. He developed an assessment tool that is twice as accurate as the SAT at predicting first year success. 
and does away with the uh, disparities in, in terms of wealth and um, ethnic background. Bob Sternberg has developed a tool. He calls it Kaleidoscope. He calls it Rainbow. He's tested it. It's been written about in journals. It is a better assessment of, of multiple intelligences. And I think now's the time to call Bob Sternberg and say, can we try your test on our campus? Um, he tried, he, uh, the college board funded some of his trials that demonstrated it was more effective than the SAT. And then, oh, the college board decided they didn't think his test could be scaled up nationally. I wonder why they're behind the SAT. There are better ways to evaluate kids is what I'm saying. And I think it's time to really invest in what those other ways might be. All right, I have added the rainbow and kaleidoscope projects on my list of things to learn about. I can't, um, I can't agree with you uh, more on that, Julie. I think it's funny that, you know, the, one of the first things that we talked about in the scandal, it's, it's an admission scandal. Like everybody calls it the admission scandal. And you know, the first thing is like, well, it's not really us. It's a, uh, it's a consulting scandal and it's a coaching scandal and it's, it's everybody else, but we've got to own it. We've got to own it. And we, we're the, whether it's, even though we weren't the cause of it, the underlying, we are the underlying cause of it, whether we like it or not. And uh, we do need to, to, you're right. It's not a tweak. We do need to rip stuff up and start over. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. To that, to yeah. that point about, about ownership. I mean, um, you know, to, to, again, reiterating that none of the 50 people implicated uh, are college admissions officers, but I want to, I want to add one more wrinkle to that point though. Um, I've heard from six or seven admissions directors and associate directors and then just a few admissions officers who um, I think are known to be uh, fairly young. And you know what? They're really pissed off. Pardon my French. Because all of them are telling me a similar story over email and I'm going to have an article about this next week. And they're telling me this. Okay, none, no one who works in admissions has, has been charged in this scandal. And okay, Maybe all the admissions folks at all these colleges didn't know this was going on and this was all news to them and they're shocked to hear it. But what all of them are telling me is that is, as shocking as this might seem to the public, that, oh, athletic coaches in general have on many campuses leeway to usher students in through a side door. That might be really shocking and a forehead slapper for most of the country. But for all these people who have worked in admissions offices at selective institutions, Division I schools mostly, for many years, they're saying everyone knows this goes on. All of us in our office know this has, has gone on. And what they're telling me, they're sharing stories with me about um, minority applicants, first-gen applicants that they had gone to bat for throughout the evaluation process in committee, and they were shot down. They felt like they couldn't get that kid in no matter um, how passionately they made the case for them. And uh, guess what? The coach had power that they didn't to get someone in. And in many cases, we are probably surely talking about white, affluent, so-called athletes. And, and I just think that, yes, uh, admissions officers might not have played a, a central role in this scandal or any role at all, but it's not news to so many people who work in admissions that this weak spot in the process, uh, giving this great power to coaches, um, is part of the system. And that's a systemic kind of issue. And as one of them put it to me, even if I had been bribed for a million dollars to make a case for this kid, I have people above me checking off on my decisions or overruling it. And here an assistant coach on some sports team on my campus had a power that I as an admissions officer did not. I would say that is a systemic problem in college admissions, not saying it's happening on all campuses, but in that respect, yeah, I think it's an admissions scandal. Yeah. And I agree. I absolutely agree that it's, it's very, very unfortunate that this handful of bad actors caused this particular scandal to occur. At the same time, it has exposed the weaknesses or the flaws within the system. And it's now going to allow us, as we talked about earlier, to take a step back to address this, to do more than tweak, as Julie said, but to really examine how we can ensure a, a fair and equitable process for all students that allows for the diversity and access that we need to provide in order to be educating our entire public. 
You know, where is the NCAA in this? I haven't heard a darn thing about them this week. They ought to be absolutely ashamed that people purporting to do work on behalf of the NCAA or as part of that community have been bribed. Where is that voice? Have I missed it or have they been silent? Yeah, I, I haven't seen anything. And that's that the question I was going to ask too. Yeah, as much as, you know, oh, we're getting a statement from NACAC and, and uh, you know, it's it's being covered by the Chronicle and it's covered in all the H education press. I haven't seen I mean, have I Has ESPN covered it? Has this been... Uh, I don't. I don't know that it has. It's on TMZ because of yeah. um, TMZ is all over this. Yeah. But um, uh, well, okay. So that's a side question. So does the fact that there's sort of the celebrity aspect of this uh, does it? It helps. It, well, it certainly helps from a publicity perspective because that was the first question that my wife asked. My wife said, "Why are you know the two faces of this the two moms and not the two dads?" And the easy argument is, well, you know, William H Macy wasn't indicted, so. You can leave him out of it, uh, and uh, uh, the the designer uh, Massimo. Uh, you, no one could, no one knows what he looks like. <laughs> you know, so you know the people because they're on TV, and so we can put them out as the face of this. But Does it that? Uh, it certainly brings it. Otherwise, it wouldn't get past the Chronicle. It would be a higher end story, and, and no one would talk about it. Um, but there's there's definitely a gender piece to this. Absolutely. Story, uh, that but it's moms who get arrested for right. letting their kids play in the park. Moms who are working class who let their kids play in the park while they work their working their their minimum wage job, those are the moms that get arrested. Moms get arrested for letting their kids walk home from school. This is, you know, mothering. Uh, helicopter parenting is uh, available to all genders, but it tends to be moms who are um, who are more visible. Uh, be, they're made more visible in the in the. Um, in the illumination of the stories. I think it's, a sh why wasn't William H. Macy indicted? That's the question, right? I'm sure, I mean, you know, it's the family that did this. It's the family's money. It's, a, you know, I, I, I think it's it's a very gendered thing and it's really unfortunate um, if these dads get let off the hook. That said, I think there are a lot of Silicon Valley families, less visibly famous, but important people, you know, in the world of business. Um, I think, you know, there are plenty of dads um, who are implicated in that. And uh, so hopefully in the end, this will be an equal opportunity um, indictment. Chris, I think the uh, the celebrity aspect of this, um, I don't know, I think, uh, w uh, you know, helped uh, create a bigger bang here for this for this story and, um, a, a, you know, a broader kind of blanket of, of interest. Um, I do think it's potentially distracting. Um, uh, so many articles kind of linger and fixate on these two television celebrities and this kind of uh, Hollywood, um, you know, uh, component or thread to this story. Um, I still think it would have been a pretty huge story anyway. I think it would have been more than, you know, the Chronicle and Inside Higher Ed and whoever else um, that, you know, covers higher ed and only education, um, even without the celebrity angle, because you had celebrity institutions. You had the University of Southern California and Stanford and Georgetown and Yale. Um, I, I think that, I think that, I think that makes it like a big honking deal, even if you don't even know who these celebrities happen to be. Yeah, I think you're right. I think, I think it still is a story. Um, and I, you know, I, the, one of the things that I really wonder, I mean, yes, this is obviously the big fish that they're getting. And this is, you know, you're talking about thousands and thousands of dollars, uh, does this happen at the small scale? And I'm sure that was part of the question that local media are asking to the local colleges. Um, but you know, it's it's. It, but it goes back to Julie's point of you know the system being broken, and this wouldn't happen if it wasn't so easy to do, and it, it's so easy to do and so hard to get caught. I mean, this has probably been happening for decades, and it, this is not. It's not new. It's just. And that was, I think, uh, Julie. You, you mentioned you tweeted yesterday. Uh, that you were you were shocked. The question came up. You know, is anyone really shocked by this? And I think those of us who are on the admission side of the desk weren't shocked by it. Maybe surprised that people got caught because nobody ever gets caught with this stuff. Um, but the it it does say something about the 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 greater picture of higher ed that has been going on behind the scenes that we don't talk about because we don't know, like we don't, we don't see it. And I very naively probably was shocked. And I said that in my tweet, I'm a 
Stanford person. I worked there. I have tremendous respect for the place and every step I took taught me that my colleagues were incredibly highly ethical people full of integrity. And, um, and so I, you know, I was one of those people just whiplash by the fact that this kind of stuff actually happens. I thought it was kind of urban myth. I thought there were checks in place to be sure that it didn't happen. Um, and I was, you know, I was shocked because, you know, you know, institutions of higher education are sort of in many ways, the keeper of, I don't know, do I sound so naive saying this? Like I'm about to say like the keeper of moral virtue in America, like this is where democracy gets taught and, and preserved. And these are where, where values are taught. And this is where the hardest questions are grappled with. And this is where, you know, everything is reckoned with. I mean, I, I actually believe that. And so, um, you know, did find myself just disbelieving that, um, not that parents would want to do this, but that somehow a um, few rogue actors on these campuses would turn out to be able to be bought and not, you know, have that behavior discovered. I think what's shocking too is how extreme this was, you know, to Julie's point that, you know, there are great lengths that parents will go to for their children, but to do this, um, to, to try and achieve at this level when there are so many wonderful opportunities, so many places for, for young people to thrive, so many opportunities open to them through legal channels to take this step. I, I think the, the nature of it was shocking. Yep, fair point. All right, so we are uh, coming up on two o'clock, so I'm going to let you all have the rest of your afternoons back. Um, but I do want to thank very much uh, all of my guests, uh, Eric Hoover from The Chronicle, uh, and Stephanie Niles from NACAC, and Julie Lifecott-Hames, uh, Buyer Books. Uh, and uh, thanks, as always, to our program sponsor, M. Stoner, and to Mongoose for sponsoring today as well. Uh, and uh, this conversation obviously is not over. There's a, a lot more that's going to go into this, and I really appreciate you all taking the time. And, um, and I look forward to, to seeing change. I think it's, the time is right. The energy is there. I don't think we can really let this go uh, and expect things to just sort of happen without folks like the three of you and all of you out there uh, listening and, and watching uh, being active and being, you know, because, you know, it's something that, that Julie said, believing in the, the paragon of higher ed and the importance of higher ed, uh, I think is, is still very valid. And I think it's still important and I think it's still real uh, and we need to actually live that in a real way and not just give it lip service and just assume that uh, the, the system's going to save itself kind of thing. Yeah. So uh, that's that for now. I am Chris Dorso and this has been Higher Ed Live Special Edition. Have a good day, everybody.